0: please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7, verse 24. Mark 7, verse 24. We'll be reading from seven twenty-four through eight ten today. A passage that's going to be found in your Bible under the translator heading, The Syrophoenician Woman's Faith. Si habla español, abran sus Biblias a Evangelio de Marcos, capítulo 7, versículo 24, a capítulo 8, versículo 10. La mujer ciro Fenicia. And the central question that the Gospel of Mark has been written to answer is this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This has been the burning question we've asked from week to week as we've entered into the story of Christ in the Gospel. And we ask this question today. Who is Jesus, believing it to be relevant and vital to us? But in the flow of redemptive history, As the story of Jesus was developing in the first century, tracking with the progress of the gospel of Mark, our text today, it presents us with the tension, is the question, who is Jesus? A question that matters to the non-Jewish world. Do Gentiles, that is those who are not of ethnic Israel, do they need to ask it? Will they benefit from asking it and applying it to their lives. As Mark's gospel has progressed, we've seen Christ at work. Is who Jesus has been to the Jews who he'll be for the Gentiles as well? And further, in our own lives today, is who Jesus has been for others who he'll be for us? Is there one answer to who is Jesus for some, but another answer for others? Our passage before us today is concerned with answering these questions about that one central question. And so as we turn our attention to the text, this word, excuse me, this morning, we'll begin by reading just verses 24 through 30 of chapter seven and covering the rest as we go. And so without any further ado, let's read God's word together and then pray and ask for God's help. Beginning in verse 24, Mark writes, "And from there. He arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs." But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. These are God's words to us. Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to help us. Lord, we thank you that you have in grace, revealed Yourself to us, that we might know the God in whom grace and forgiveness and life are to be found, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who sent the Christ into the world to be the Savior of the world. And this morning, Lord, I pray that You would help us to answer the question, who is Jesus, as it presents itself in the text before us, and that in seeing His work among the Gentiles, we would be more encouraged, more expectant, more eager to believe that there is grace for us, that there is work that Christ is doing in and through and among us even today. Would you encourage our hearts through the Word before us? Would you fill us with your spirit to understand it, to apply it, and to believe it? We ask that you would be glorified in this time as your gospel goes forth, and we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, coming off the controversy with the Pharisees about the cleanliness of hands uh, and directing our our focus to the more dangerous defilement of the heart, Jesus, he now enters into an unclean region full of Gentile hearts that are desperately in need of cleansing. And as we enter into the three stories that are before us today, here's the, the literary tension of the text. Will Jesus do for the Gentiles what we've seen him do? for the Jews? Is there a border or boundary marker that limits just how far His grace will go? That's the tension we're made to feel as we enter into this set of stories in Mark. And we recall that Mark, the author, he's writing to a Gentile that is non-Jewish audience. And undoubtedly, as he's writing to this audience in the first century, he would aim to persuade them that the same blessings of the Jews our blessings that are available to them as well wanting to encourage their hearts of this that the messiah of israel is one who has come to deliver them as well and to usher them into the communion of the one true god and all the benefits of belonging to him in this way the three scenes that are before us today in which christ goes out to the gentiles they anticipate the global mission of the church to come after his resurrection and ascension And though the the reality of God's global mission is a gloriously true reality, it's something we've just celebrated this morning as we've sung, It, it may not hit us so close to home this morning. And the reason for that is because for us, it's kind of a given, isn't it? That his mission would go out to the ends of the earth because here we are today. We already know the end of the story that Mark is telling. We ourselves are Gentiles, the most of us, I would presume, We're living thousands of miles and thousands of years after the events of Mark's gospel, and we've received the salvation of Jesus the Messiah. And so for us, it's not an open question if God really wants to welcome all languages and cultures in Christ, if God really wants to redeem a people from every tribe and nation and tongue for himself. We believe, we've confessed, we've sang and celebrated this morning that there is no border or boundary that God's grace will not cross that he is the God of Jews and Gentiles alike, saving them by grace through faith in the work of his son and creating a new family for us to live in. But within that family, within the church, as we look out at how God is working here today among us, we can translate the tension of this text into the tension of our lives. As the Gentiles back then might have wondered, Will God be gracious to us as he's been gracious to the Jews? We can wonder, and listen to this, will Jesus do for me what he does for others? Will Jesus do for me what I see him doing for them? This is the tension of our lives. Do you struggle this morning with the functional belief that Jesus only does fill in the blank? For other people, but not for me. He only meets them this way, but he doesn't really meet me that way. He provides for them this way, but doesn't provide for me that way. His grace is moving toward those around me, my brothers and sisters in the church, those other other people in my small group, but not really me. I don't seem to experience that. Listen, this morning, does a sinful comparison threaten your heart and soul? I believe that the Lord would have us ask this question of ourselves today. You see, for the Gentiles in our text, they could have looked out upon the blessings of the Jews and become fixated on all that they lacked, right, in comparison to the Jews. They could have concluded that, man, the Jews have so much, we have so little. (sighs) These blessings probably aren't for us. They're probably just for them. What about you this morning? Do you look out upon the blessings of others? And set them side by side with what you lack. Seeing their blessing, the goodness of God toward them, and just putting it right next to what you lack. And having that comparison be the focus of your mind and heart. Looking around to others, especially those fellow members and brothers and sisters in the church, do you see Jesus providing for them the home that you want, the spouse that you desire? The promotion that you long for, or the steady stream of grace that leaves them joyful, seemingly, more often than not, while you have to fight desperately for joy and never seem to enter into your own season of refreshing. I could go on and on and on, but the point is that we can look out upon what Jesus is doing in and through other people in such a way that can prove utterly disastrous for our own hearts. be dangerous to them. That comparison could open up a door to our hearts that allows all sorts of sinful attitudes, unhelpful dispositions, and bitter fruit to be born in us. Consider this, the, the fruit of comparison allowed to just run rampant in our hearts. I'm so focused on what I lack and what others have that discontent begins to set in. I look out and everyone's grass is greener than mine. Others seem to catch breaks that I don't. Others don't get hit with one thing after another like I do. And then jealousy develops. Why can't I have what others do? Don't I deserve it? Hasn't God promised it to me? Maybe there's another way I could possess this apart from waiting upon the Lord. Your mind and heart start to wonder. And then bitterness Takes root. I can develop a bitter resentment toward other people because they have what I lack. I can deal with frustration toward others and even frustration toward the Lord. That keeps me from rejoicing with those who rejoice around me and keeps me from rejoicing over what I have already from Him. Bitterness can set in. We can become cynical and say, That's just how life is. I know God saved me, so. I guess I just need to be happy with that and I shouldn't expect too much otherwise from his goodness and his grace meeting me in this life, in the here and now. And that, that might be if we're fortunate, right? Because the Bible tells us that the root of bitterness is what? It's unbelief. And left unchecked, that root of bitterness will kill the vine of our spiritual life and leave us saying, I guess believing in Christ isn't really worth it. It's not what it's been cracked up to be Do I even need this in my life as we become bitter and cynical? Finally, despair could come over us. Being so preoccupied with what we lack, it can become difficult to discern God's love for us. I can look at my life and find that it's hard to see the marks of his love because my sight has been so clouded by bitter comparison, so focused upon others and what they have In contrast to what I lack. My eyes so far off Christ, so fixed on them, and my need that I am completely clouded to see the Savior who is all-sufficient for me. Church, comparison is a cancer that threatens to eat away at our hearts, to rob us of much joy, and, more than anything, to dishonor Christ as the same Lord of us all, who is unchanging, who is all-sufficient, who is love himself, steadfastly committed to his people. And as we begin to believe that God won't do for me what he'll do for others, listen, we'll begin to lessen our expectations of God, lessen our expectations of his goodness toward us. We'll go to him functionally, right? Practically less in prayer than we used to. We won't get our hopes up in the fear that they'll be disappointed We won't move toward him in faith. We won't go out on a limb and be embarrassed because we put ourselves out there, made ourselves vulnerable to God, and he left us hanging. We'll effectively guard our hearts from receiving the grace of the Lord. We'll guard our hearts from God himself as comparison and all its bitter fruits begin to take root in us. And into all this, Mark 7, 24 through 8:10. It speaks and it says to us, the blessings of others don't mean there's none left for us. This is good news. The Gentiles believed that the grace of Christ, if it came to the Jews, then there'd be grace for them too. The grace of God that comes by faith is meant to teach you and I. The grace of God that comes to these Gentiles by faith in the stories before us is meant to teach us this. That you and I We need to guard our hearts from comparison, but don't guard them from the grace of God. Let me say that again to you. Guard your heart from comparison. Don't guard it from the grace of God. In response to the blessings of the Jews, uh, to these Gentiles in Mark chapter 7 through 8, these Gentiles, they don't lessen their expectations of Jesus. They don't give in to bitter jealousy and comparison or conclude that there's nothing left for them. Instead, the blessings and privileges of others lead them to the glorious conclusion that Jesus is overflowing with grace for them. They see others' blessings, and they take it as a sign that God has more in store for them, not less. In the three stories today that are before us about Christ drawing the hearts of these Gentiles to himself, they're meant to open up our hearts to the grace of God and guard them from that cancer of comparison. Three stories of Christ's work among the Gentiles to encourage our faith regarding his work in us. And three stories will form our three-point outline for the rest of our time together this morning. Um, Each of these points comes uh, as a a, a guard uh, of sorts for our heart uh, that attaches to the story that we'll read. So point number one, Jesus' grace toward others should spur on faith not so discontent. And the points are long, so I'll repeat them and you can listen to them later, but listen to this. Jesus' grace toward others should spur on faith, not so discontent. This is the story of the Syrophoenician woman in verses 24 through 30. Point number two, Jesus' care for others doesn't mean there's no room in his heart for you. His care for others does not mean there's no room in his heart for you. This is the story of the deaf and mute man, of verses 31 through 37, and finally, point number 3. Jesus has more than crumbs for you. He has more than crumbs for you. This is the story of the feeding of the 4000, chapter 8 verses 1 through 10. And with that, we enter into our first point. Number 1. That Jesus grace toward others should spur on faith, not so discontent. And as the scene picks up in verse 24, after his conflict with the Pharisees and perhaps escaping some harassment from the Pharisees and King Herod alike, Jesus and his disciples, they enter into the Gentile region of Tyre and Sidon, which is a modern-day Lebanon for us geographically. And he tries secretly to enter a house, it says in verse 24. Yet Mark writes that he could not be hidden. He just can't stay hidden. <laughs> For straight away, in the first of these three scenes concerning the grace of God reaching the Gentiles, Jesus comes and he meets a desperate woman. Her daughter, we, we learn, we read, is demon-possessed, and she falls at his feet, just like Jairus did back in Mark chapter 5. But she's not like Jairus at all. She's, as the text tells us, a pagan Gentile who is an outsider to the promises and covenant of Israel. Mark writes that this woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, which means that she is ceremonially unclean, as we learned about and heard about last Sunday. She is a pagan worshiper who worships false gods and deities with a false hope in them. And these sorts of pagan worshippers in the first century, it was expected the Messiah would come and instead of embracing them, would expel them from the land of promise. On paper, this woman, she has no right to the covenant love or saving power of God under the old covenant of the Jews. She could not be more different than Jairus, the synagogue president and pious Jew who fell at the feet of Jesus. She is a total outsider. But here she's come into the house where Jesus is staying as she begs him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So the question is, will Jesus do for her what he did for Jairus? That's the tension of the text that we're seeing here. That's the drama Mark has drawn us into. Here, this Gentile woman, she comes in desperation, seeking the help of the Jewish Messiah, of this Jesus that she's heard about, who has power over demonic forces, and she's come desperately seeking his saving power. As James Edwards says, this woman... Can claim none of the credits that a good Jew might bring to the prophet of Nazareth. Her only cover letter is her desperate need. Will he do for her what he's done now for others so far in Mark? Will his grace extend beyond the bounds of Israel? And to her question, Jesus gives a reply to this request, which is interesting If not perplexing, if not even controversial (laughs) in the parable that he offers to her uh, in in reply here. We're going to walk through the interaction uh, as briefly as we can this morning, but she says to Jesus in verse 26 um, that she has the request that he would deliver her daughter, that he would extend his mercy toward this Gentile woman and her daughter. And Jesus replies in verse 27 with the words, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. How is that for a straightforward answer to your desperate question? <laughs> Heal my daughter. <laughs> but the children need to eat. What? What is going on? What, what does he mean by this? You see, Jesus responds to her request with a, a parable of sorts, a striking dinner table metaphor. And the, the, the upshot of this is that Jesus says, let the children eat first, meaning my priority as the Messiah to the Jews is the Jewish people first. I've come to call the lost sheep of Israel. Salvation is from the Jews. I've come first in order that the children of Israel might eat all they want. It would not be right for me to feed the dogs, that is, the house pets, who are lingering around the table, for those of you who have dogs and ever eat a meal, and see them coming around looking to get whatever they might from atop the table. He says, it wouldn't make sense, it wouldn't be right for me, in this parable, the father, to feed the pets before I feed the kids. And so my priority is to Israel, is what Jesus begins to uh, relate to this woman. And now, that's controversial in and of itself, because he refers to her, he refers to the Gentile people as dogs. And this has been something that has been perplexing, something that's been controversial, something that folks have said Jesus was sliding her. He was offending her. He was speaking in a way that was denigrating to her and to her culture. And we can say two things. One, the word he uses in the Greek isn't the same word that you would use for a street dog, some kind of mongrel, some kind of mutt that you wouldn't want in the house. This is the kind of dog that you do want in the house, who has a seat around the table. And so, it's a bit of a different emphasis there. Though we do know that the idea of a dog, that sort of term, that concept in the Old Testament, it does refer to the Gentiles, those who are unclean, those who are further out from God, who need to be brought near through a cleansing and atoning work. And so, Jesus is shedding a light upon the fact that she's in the outgroup, but we'll see how that uh, affects her her faith, her request, her pressing in to receive his blessing and mercy. Second thing we can note is that if it was meant to be offensive, the woman's reply indicates that she doesn't take it to be offensive. But instead, she plays along. She answers the parable from within the parable. And let's look at what she says here. Jesus says, Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And this might hear or this right here, could have been the end of the story, right? (laughs) Jesus is saying, sorry, I've come for Israel, not you. And the woman could have left it right here and concluded, well, the grace of God is extended toward others, but not toward me. But she doesn't do that. She doesn't stop here. She offers an answer to Jesus, which indicates that she believes that his grace can very well overflow from beyond the bounds of Israel to meet her in her distress, as she says to him in verse 28. Yes, Lord, Uh, meaning sir here more so than probably being intended as a divine kind of title. Yes, Lord. Yet, she says, even the dogs under the children's table eat the crumbs. So Christ says, I can't feed the dogs. I have to feed the kids. She says, okay, that's fair. I admit that. But the dogs do get the crumbs, don't they? (laughs) The woman, not being offended by the parable, uh, plays into it. And she agrees. Yes, Jesus, it's fitting that Israel be fed first. You are the Jewish Messiah, and salvation is from the Jews, after all. I understand that. But here's her faith. The presence of a Jewish priority does not exclude the capability of Jesus to meet the needs of the nations. Those aren't mutually exclusive things, and she understands this. She believes that he has the sufficiency and the surplus within him to provide for both Israel and the nations. As she understands it, the dogs will not rob the children of their food because the head of the house has plenty to go around. The dogs can eat the crumbs and the children will experience no lack. And in this way, the woman, she expresses her great trust in Jesus to be able and willing to do what she's asked him to do. In other words, Jesus can feed the children and the dogs at the same time, and she believes this. The woman, she indicates that even though salvation is from the Jews, as it says in John 4, 22, that does not mean that Jesus doesn't have a salvation that is also for the world. She believes that Jesus has grace for her. She does not lessen his expectation of who he is or what he could do for her and conclude that he only has grace for others but not herself. But she believes. And her faith in this grace is not limited or bound up by geographic borders, cultural barriers, or whatever else comprises her background. Though she's not under the old covenant, she has faith in Christ and she anticipates the reality of that new covenant which he would soon establish in his blood upon the cross. A new covenant in which faith in Christ, not circumcision, not works of the law, or any other thing in us, or any other thing about us, or anything else that is offered from us, would be the means by which we'd come to enjoy the covenant and all of its blessings. And so this is her faith that she puts on display here. Christ says, I've come for Israel, and she says, okay, but in coming for Israel, I believe you have enough for us as well. And Jesus, in verse 29, he's pleased with her reply, and he does not disappoint her faith. He extends his power toward her and cast out the demon with a word. The woman She's understood this parable of Jesus. She's answered him from within it, and she's demonstrated that she herself, she understands the mission of Jesus better than we've seen actually the disciples understanding the mission of Jesus up to this point. She gets it. She gets it that, yes, you are the Messiah of the Jews, and you have it in you to bring saving power, healing, release, and liberation to those who are affected by sin and death and darkness, both among the Jews and among the nations. And in this way, We see the woman as Jesus gives her her, his initial reply, she responds to it, and then he grants her request. We see in her a kind of model, right, of asking in faith, even of wrestling with God as a point of application for us, as we think about our lack and what others might seem to have. It's kind of like Jacob, isn't it? Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ back in Genesis 32, saying, I'll let you go when, when you bless me. And he wrestled through the night until the morning broke and the angel gave Jacob that blessing. He changed his name and he changed him forever. He walked with a limp, but always remember that time the Lord had met him. The woman here, she is wrestling with with God like Jacob. She's wrestling with Jesus through this request. She's wrestling with him through prayer. And it's a model for us. It's an application for us that we ought to wrestle with God like the Syrophoenician woman. When we're experiencing our own lack, when we're tempted to Look out upon what others have and to be bitter, to despair, to be jealous. We're to go to God in prayer and follow her model, refusing to let go of Him until He meets us, until He blesses us. And that doesn't mean that we'll always get what we want, but it means that we ought to take up this story as a call to persevere in prayer. Because as the book of James says in chapter 4, verse 2, James says, Well, Sometimes you don't get what you want because you ask wrongly, right? You got bad desires and God's not going to give it to you. But, he says, there are other times that you do not have because you do not ask. And in this case, the woman is a prime example of not uh, holding back, not refraining from asking God, but pressing into him, going toward him in prayer. She doesn't allow her lack. She doesn't allow that relative comparison of all the Jews have and the little, right, the crumbs that the Gentiles might receive to hold her back from prayer. But instead, she sees that God is able to bless, and he is able to save, and he's able to do mighty things. And she goes, oh, that's all the more confidence that I have, that he might do the same for me. And instead of withdrawing in comparison, she presses into Christ with prayer. And she gives us a model and an encouragement to do the same. Summing up this scene, Jesus, he entered that house so that his saving power could come to her house. He went to Tyre in order to deliver an oppressed girl and draw the heart of her mother to himself, all the while teaching us about prayer, about perseverance and persistence in asking God for what we do need. And he taught us also that the power of Christ is not bound to Israel. But that's not all. Not only will Christ's power extend toward the Gentiles, so will his personal care. And that brings us to point number two. That Jesus' care for others doesn't mean there's no room in his heart for you and I. This is the story of the deaf man and the mute man in verses 31 through 37. Allow me to read the story. It says, after this scene of healing the woman's daughter, casting out that demon, verse 31, then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute to speak. After this exorcism, Jesus leaves the region of Tyre, passes through Sidon, travels by the sea, and enters into the Decapolis. That's a journey of of many miles, but still finds him in Gentile territory. Decapolis is a Greek name for the ten cities, a large region he's been in prior, the region into which he sent the man who was possessed by the legion of demons. That man said, can I come with you? Christ said, no. Go to your friends and family and tell them all the Lord has done. And here now we find Jesus entering into this region. And it would seem like the soil of these these hearts has been tilled, has been made ready, has been made fertile through the witness of that man for a group of, of friends and companions to say, Jesus, we have someone we believe you can help. We believe you can heal. God in his providence has used that demoniac to prepare these people for the coming of Christ to them. And they bring, in verse 32, these inhabitants of the Decapolis, this man who Mark describes as deaf and having a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand upon him to heal him. This man is a, a man who is in desperate need of healing. He has, you know, in other words, incurable diseases, problems that he cannot treat through any other means but a miracle. He's in desperate need because, consider this, the man is both Deaf and cannot hear, and that not being bad enough, he also suffers from a speech impediment, and therefore he can hardly talk. What this means is that this man cannot effectively communicate with anyone. He can't build relationship. He can't experience deep friendship and companionship because he can't hear what's going on, nor can he even utter a word himself that's clear and plain imagine this. Imagine if you were in a situation like that. It sounds like a bad dream where you can't move or can't talk and you're feeling that kind of weird sleep paralysis thing. This guy is cut off. He's alienated. He can't share the deep burdens of his soul or listen to others as they pour their souls out to him. He can't sing songs of joy and celebration. He, he never even knows what other people are laughing about around him as he sees them having fun and enjoying themselves. He's lonely, he's alienated, and he's desperately in need of a cure beyond what anyone else uh, or anything else can do for him. Yet, as Jesus comes to town, the acquaintances of this man, they bring him before him. And they, like Jairus and the woman with blood, and now the Syrophoenician woman, it says that they begged Jesus to extend his compassion toward the man. They believe, these Gentiles, that Jesus can do this um, for the man. They believe this, and so they come in the hopes that he'll do this. They believe that Jesus will take the time to help this poor soul, that Christ has room in his heart for a man like this. And in response to their request in verse 33, we see that Jesus, he takes the man aside from the crowd privately, that is personally, and he treats him like a person, not just like a problem to be solved. Jesus deals with him as a unique individual, as an image bearer of God. And this one who was cut off from others and alienated and lonely and devoid of any meaningful companionship. He receives the healing touch of Jesus, quite literally. Jesus takes his fingers and he places them in his ears. And not only this, but he also takes the spit from his mouth, applied to his hand, and then sticks it right on the tongue of this dude. Communicating that he is engaging directly with the affected areas. He is going to do a healing work to reverse what is broken in this man. And in in so doing, he also touches and comes near to a ceremonially unclean Gentile. And this is we've seen before in Mark. We see that, again, Christ's holiness and his power, they're no match, or excuse me, they are far above being a match to the uncleanness and the unholiness that comes from us. Christ is moving toward this man in his desperate need, placing his hands directly where the need is most direly felt and doing something about it. If we ask the question, why spit? (laughs) Why is that necessary, Jesus? You can heal with just a word. Uh, The short answer would be that in the ancient world, uh, spit or certain kinds of balm were often associated with healing. And Jesus, he doesn't need to do this, but uh, he might choose to do this in order to demonstrate to the man in that moment of his healing what he's about to do. That that man would see um, not just kind of a, a drive by healing and off Jesus goes again, but that Christ would take the time, pull him aside, and then touching his ears, spinning on his hand and touching his tongue, the man would go, oh, I know what's happening. He's going to heal me. He is moving toward me to fix me, to fix what is broken, to fix what is wrong, to bring me into a newness of life. Christ is showing his heart for the man in taking the time and taking the pains that he does in the healing of the man. And so Christ engages with the affected parts of him. And in verse 34, we can't miss what happens next. It says that looking up to heaven, that is in a posture of prayer to the Father, he sighed. He sighed and said to him, "Ephetha, that is, be opened. Consider this. Jesus sighed, and that's not some throwaway line that Mark includes, not an insignificant detail in the text that Christ would sigh in the midst of this healing. Faced with this man's plight, Jesus sighed, or better translated, he groaned. He groaned for the man who was suffering this affliction. He groaned over the fallen state of the world in which the curse of sin was evident everywhere, evident in this man's deafness, evident in this man's inability to talk, causing deafness and disease. Jesus groans as he perceives the root of all suffering and thistles and thorns that we encounter in this world around us. For this man to be deaf and impaired in speech was for him to be a member of the fallen humanity, Living in, a, living in a fallen world that, as Paul says in Romans 8, a world that is itself groaning, a world that is itself subjected to futility. Futility. Think of this. The futility of ears that couldn't hear, the futility of a tongue that can't speak. The creation groans, this man groans, and here comes Jesus, and he groans along with him. But a groaning that is not a mere sympathy, It's certainly no less than the heart of the Son of God being drawn out toward his suffering, but it's also much more. And friends, this is the gospel. That Jesus, he sighed for us, that we would sigh no more. For Jesus, he groaned as the God-man who saw the plight of humanity and had come in order to do something about it. His groan in response to a fallen and sin-cursed world is simultaneously his resolve to reverse that fall to redeem sinners, and to make all things new. That's what we're seeing in the healing of this man. He groaned, Jesus. This as the children of Israel groaned under their bitter slavery in Egypt. Yet, Jesus groaned as the one who himself came to bring about a new and greater exodus. How do we know this? Because look with me down at verse 37 in the text. Because after this man is uh, healed and his ears are opened, like a door that was shut, and his tongue is released uh, as if it had been bound by a prisoner's chain. And Christ charges the people not to say anything, a command that they joyfully ignore. (laughs) They give a summary, the folks who experienced this healing, who witnessed it, of what's just taken place. They say in verse 37 that he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And this statement, in verse 37, though coming from the mouths of Gentiles, is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 35, which Mark, our author, doesn't want us to miss. For back in Isaiah's day, hundreds of years before the coming of Christ, he prophesied of this new exodus to come after the people of Israel uh, were fully and finally brought out of their exile. An exile that went deeper than their distance from the land, but included their own distance from God's holy presence on account of their sin. An exile that would end as their sins were fully and finally forgiven. And they were regathered to the promised land, and the restoration of God would be released upon them. This week, we don't have time to go into all of it, but read Isaiah chapter 35. What Jesus is doing in this scene in particular is fulfilling and fleshing out the hope of Isaiah. In chapter 35 and verse 2, the pronouncement is made that God is going to do this new work, where he'll bring refreshing in the desert and bring a time of joy about and in verse 2 of chapter 35 of Isaiah, it said that the nations, that they'll see the glory of the Lord in this saving work, that the people of Lebanon will hear this saving work. And where has Christ been? But in Tyre and Sidon, which is Lebanon. Christ has come to bring to the nations the glory of his saving work. But that's not all. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 through 6, says this, that in that day, when the one who would come to win the exile, he says, in that day, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Christ is fulfilling this prophecy. The deaf are hearing. The tongue of the mute is singing for joy and speaking plainly. This day has come in Christ's ministry. And already in Mark, the lame man has come to walk, and as we'll see in chapter 8 and chapter 10, those who were born blind will come to see. Christ is fulfilling this prophecy. He's bringing about a time of newness and restoration. He's bringing about a new and greater exodus. And in this, we see that the time in which God would save his people would coincide with the time in which God would bless the world. He would bless the nations. That salvation would not just be bound to Israel, but would sweep out and overflow across the world. The Gentiles, according to Isaiah 35 and according to this text before us now, are caught up and God's redemptive purposes. The kingdom he's building is one that includes glad and joyful subjects from every tribe and nation and tongue. This compassion of God is not limited to Israel. And finally, in Isaiah 35, verse 10, we see that Jesus is ushering in a new exodus in which, to quote Isaiah one more time, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and listen to this, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Jesus, he sighed so that our sighing would be no more, that our sorrows and our suffering due to sin would be done away with. He's come to bring joy into this world for us, to take away the curse of sin and suffering and all the sighing that we endure. He would do this by taking on the sorrow and sighing of the world, by stepping into the sin-cursed creation that he had made, stepping into our sin-cursed lives and facing on, head on, the fallen situation that we live in. He groaned for the groaning of creation. He sighed the sighs of fallen sinners. And at the cross, he bore the curse of sin that we might obtain gladness and joy. As he ransomed us. Oh, church, this is the gospel. Jesus sighed that we would sigh no more and have the joy of the Lord now and look forward to a future, as Revelation says in chapter 21, verse 4, a future in which one day Jesus would wipe every tear from our eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Christ has come to bring this newness, this gladness, not just to Israel to the world, not just to your neighbor, not just to your fellow small group member, but to you. He has it in him to meet you in your sighing and to give you limitless joy. Jesus sighed for the deaf man. He sighs with you and his heart doesn't just go out to others. Mark tells us it goes out to you. He's eager and able to step into the midst of your groaning to do his work in you. But, as we arrive at our final scene, Jesus not only groans and sighs for what leaves us longing, he satisfies our deepest longings as well. And that brings us to our final scene and our final point, that Jesus has more than breadcrumbs for you. More than crumbs for you. Reading the text, we encounter a familiar story that we've heard in some ways before, though with some differences as well. Starting in verse 1, it says that, "...in those days when again a great crowd had gathered," And they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. He directed them, um, excuse me, he directed the crowd to sit on the ground and he took the seven loaves, and having given them, uh, giving thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also, also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. And so here, a familiar scene, but now in a new context, in a new situation. For Jesus has been in Tyre and Sidon, he's been in the Decapolis, and as verse 1 begins with this story of the feeding of the 4,000, Mark does not indicate any shift in scenery. We should rightly assume he's still in the same place, he's still among the Gentiles. And Jesus goes on to feed the Gentiles, miraculously providing enough food for 4,000 of them. Though it's a smaller scale than the previous feeding, which could have been up to 20,000 people, the point is the same. Christ has it in him to satisfy the needs of the nations. He's not limited. He doesn't have a storehouse that's only so big as to provide Israel what they most desperately need, but also to provide the nations, the whole world, and us today what we need most desperately from the infinite stores of his grace. So, here we have Jesus. The crowd gathered around him, and they have nothing to eat. The tension of the scene, just like we've experienced in the previous two stories, is will Jesus satisfy the hunger of the nations? Will he provide for them like he provided for the Jews? In verse 2, it reveals his heart toward this crowd and toward their great need. For Jesus himself, he calls the disciples over to him as he looks on upon the crowd and says, I have compassion on them because they've been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want them to go away and on this long journey faint in their travels. Verse 2, it shows us, at the heart of Christ, it goes out to them. He's not unconcerned for their welfare. He's attuned to their need, and he desires to meet it. He doesn't want them to go away hungry, unsatisfied, and exposed to the danger of fainting on the way. Far be it that they leave his presence, the presence of Jesus, drained, (laughs) That they leave his presence spent and disadvantaged, not nourished, and encouraged and sent out in renewed strength. Far be it they'd go out in that way. Far be it that we would go out that way, entering into Christ's presence and not experiencing his strengthening, his nourishing, his soul-satisfying work in us. But as disciples, they reveal that they still haven't quite learned the lesson of chapter six. They're still learning to understand the miracle of the loaves, and they are not sure how they might find enough food in this wilderness, in this desolate place, that would feed all these people, that would satisfy them, that would give them not just a little snack, but enough to substantially sustain them and carry them on. How will we satisfy the hunger of this crowd? And just as with the last feeding, (laughs) Jesus looks to them and says, well, what do we have? (laughs) And they say, we have seven loaves of bread and a couple of fish. What Jesus takes from the disciples and then serves and dispenses through the disciples. And he multiplies them to feed the entire crowd. He uses his disciples as the instruments of his compassion. He uses them as a miraculous waitstaff in order to draw them into what's going on, to impress upon their hearts and minds, these disciples, that not only... uh, you know, not only for them to see the greatness of his power, but the greatness of his goodness. And in particular, to see that this goodness, this power, is something that is meant to, intended to, go out to the world. And that he'll use his disciples to reach the world with the compassion, with the care, and with the goodness of Jesus. And in so doing, he attests to us that he can, in fact, and he will, in fact, satisfy the hunger of the nations. And looking at verse 8, we can say that confidently and that he can satisfy their desire. He can satisfy our desire for what's most uh, desperately uh, longing within us uh, because of what verse 8 says. Look at this. It says, and they ate and were satisfied. Again, that's not, and they had enough to go on. They were satisfied. They had plenty to eat and they were full. And it says that they took up the broken pieces left over and there were what? Seven baskets left over. Christ not only has it in him to feed 4,000 people, he has enough to do so, so abundantly that there would be seven baskets of leftovers. (laughs) Seven baskets. The number seven, the biblical number of fullness, of completeness, and perfection. Seven baskets left over, meaning that Jesus has it in him to meet the needs of the fullness of the Gentiles. Every one he would draw to himself from among peoples to the ends of the earth. He could abundantly meet the needs of Israel, which we see in the 12 baskets left over in the previous feeding. And now here we see that he also in himself has the inexhaustible resources and riches to feed the nations, to meet the needs of the peoples as well. He does not have a limited supply of grace. In other words, only reserved for Israel, nor does he have a limited supply of grace that only extends to those around you, yet not you. He has it in him to satisfy your soul by offering the very bread of life. And and this morning, if you've never received this bread of life before, you can do so today. You can do so and receive the bread of life, which satisfies what we most desperately need, which satisfies the longing we have to know God and to be at peace with God through the reconciling work of Christ. Because Him, Him giving the bread, He is pointing ahead and pointing us forward to the time in which He would give Himself upon the cross giving his body in our place that our penalty might be borne, our punishment might be taken, and forgiveness for us would be received. Giving his body that we might receive it as our substitute, as our sacrifice, and enter into God's presence in peace and reconciliation with joy and with life. Christ offers himself to you today, and if you've never received him before, (laughs) no. Believe that he is just as eager to give you this bread, this bread of life which will cause you to live forever with him. He's eager to give it now as he was eager to give it then. Oh, Believe today and receive what Christ has for you. And for the rest of us, ask yourself, are you taking for granted this bread of life that we've so richly and fully and abundantly received because you're too caught up on receiving the stuff of life? Seeing what you lack and especially what others have that you don't, and focusing your prayers, your hope, and your anticipation on just one kind of provision. While Christ says, but look what I've given to you. And you're taking for granted this bread of life because so caught up are you on the stuff of life. And that's leading you to discontent and to despair and to (laughs) bitterness. Believe that Christ has it in him. This story would teach us to give you what you need most. What you need most, which is to be satisfied in him. And so putting this all together, our text has proven that in Christ, there's a fountain of grace that overflows far beyond the bounds of Israel. Just as God spoke of Christ in the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 49, saying of him that, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant and raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Too light a thing that Christ would only come for Israel. Too light a thing that his grace would stop at the other, at others around us, but be uh, lacking for us. Mark chapter 7, 24 through eight ten. it answers the question, who is Jesus in this way? He is the one who will be exalted among the nations, glorified as the one overflowing with mercy and goodness, whose grace knows no bounds, ethnic, geographic, socionomic, or otherwise who welcomes all who would come to drink from this well, from this fountain of life and blessing and salvation by plunging the hand of faith into his limitless supply of grace. He's all-sufficient for the needs of the world, and he's all-sufficient for your needs as well. And so before we go, so quickly, three points of application to take with us that would help us guard our hearts from comparison and open them up to the grace of God in Christ. Very quickly, How to guard our hearts from comparison. One, rejoice with those who rejoice. Don't let your heart be dulled and defiled by bitterness. But instead, keep your heart clean, as it were, with gratitude, with celebration and thanksgiving that comes out of your heart as you view those around you. Not as rivals or competitors for a limited amount of grace, but as fellow partakers in the infinite and overflowing fountain of grace that comes from God. Combat comparison and bitterness by rejoicing with those who rejoice. Number two, open up your heart to God in order to close the doors of comparison. That is, as the Syrophoenician woman modeled so well for us, pour out your heart, persevere, and wrestle with God in prayer. This text, among other things, is a call to prayer, to draw near to God when we perceive our need and not to withdraw from him into bitterness, into discontent, into despair. Press into Christ with prayer as you perceive your lack, as you perceive the tension of what you don't have and what others do have. Don't withdraw. Don't give in to temptation. Press into Christ with prayer. And finally, compare yourself to yourself, not others. Instead of thinking, look what God has done for them and not for me, let's turn that on its head. And let's say, but look at what God has done for me. Look at where I was before Christ came to me, and look at me now. Not that I'm living in perfection already, but that, like the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman, Christ has met me with the saving power that comes from him and has rescued me from sin and death and darkness. That like the deaf and mute man, he has pulled me aside. He has touched my heart and brought me into a newness of life with him and his people. Like those hungry crowds, he gave himself for me upon the cross and he invites me to find life and joy and peace and hope in him that will never be disappointed. Oh, church, the grace of Christ has overflowed to us. Would we compare our condition in Christ to our condition apart from Christ? And would that Christ comparison guard our hearts from the sinful cancer of comparison? Would it encourage our faith and open our hearts afresh to the grace of God. Let's pray.